Hello. Well, if you're like me, you are quite disappointed this morning that you are not here at church on a Sunday like we were expecting to be, um, given this snap uh, full statewide lockdown. Um, so I've done the best I can, as quickly as I can, to record a message and upload that. Um, so uh, this is all it is today, is just the message. Uh, if you'd like to do some worship or something, go on YouTube, find some of your favourite songs that you enjoy and, uh, and listen to them and worship with your family together. Uh, I know it's a, it's a tough moment for us all. So before we, we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do come before you now and I bring our people before you. Lord, I pray that uh, these uh, few days of, of full lockdown, Lord, would, uh, would not um, hamper our spirits and would not uh, de delay the purposes and the plans that you have in store for us. But Lord, would only strengthen our resolve to be together. And so, Lord, we, uh, we come before you and we ask that your plans and purposes would not be thwarted by this. But Lord, you'd be glorified through our response to it. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the question I have for you this morning is, have you ever been somewhere where you feel like you just don't fit? Where you just sort of feel out of place? Have you ever been in a group of people who are, you know, where you, where you just don't feel like you're welcome? Where you feel like you don't belong? See, we've been made to connect. We've been made to be connected with others in relationship with God and with each other, which is why these lockdowns are so hard. And so, however, when we feel that we don't belong, it sort of hurts because we feel rejection deeply. Some churches can sadly be just like this. The people in the church are so friendly towards each other those families that have been in the church for generations are all friends with each other and, and are almost blind to new people, like they don't even have a space in their lives for anyone else. And so you might go to that church for six months or a year and, and never make a genuine connection with anyone there. I've been to those churches and it is sad because there is an in-group and if you're not in that in group, then you're out. And this can even happen in smaller groups, the cool kids and the not cool kids. I was so pleased to hear from some of our 17 visitors that we had last week that we are such a, a welcoming group of people that made them feel very welcome here. As a pastor, this gave me great joy in our church because I know we are a warm and friendly church. But we aren't just warm and friendly to each other. We're warm and friendly to new people and visitors. This is a place where you can belong, where you'll be warmly welcomed. So well done. I say to you, church, well done. Keep it up. Long may it continue. But the problem of the in-group has been an issue among followers of Jesus since Jesus called the 12. But it's an issue that he also directly addresses in the second half of chapter 9 of Luke. So open your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 49. John answered, Master, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. This incident exposed an attitude of rivalry among the 12 that existed towards other disciples of Jesus. This was not a problem of accepted theory, doctrine or practice. The exorcists believe in Jesus. It was rather a problem of fellowship or association. This guy was doing the right thing. He just wasn't one of the 12. He appears to have been one of the fringe, uh, on the fringe of Jesus' followers. You know, the 12, they wanted to exclude him because he was not in their close little group. But Jesus wanted to include him. Jesus' reply was clear. Followers of Jesus should regard people who do not oppose them as associates rather than enemies. Followers of Jesus need to be aware of their attitude toward believers who are outside of their circle of fellowship, as well as their attitude to those within the circle. Luke's account of of this uh, uh, incident is very brief, but it certainly cuts through to the heart of the matter. The one who is not against you is for you. What unifies followers of Jesus is that we are followers of Jesus. So we are together. There's no need for rivalry with the group of Christians down the road or in another church. We're all one big family and everyone is welcome in our family. But there are some unhealthy attitudes and practices that followers of Jesus can fall into that may cause us to question if indeed we are followers of Jesus. Or are we against Jesus? And several of those are given as examples in chapter 9. So today is an opportunity to do a bit of a self-check. As we ask the question, are you for Jesus or against Jesus? The first example is a lack of faith. Verse 37. On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. The disciples had just returned from their assignment of going out to the surrounding towns to cast out demons, heal and proclaim the kingdom of God. They'd just seen the transfiguration and come down the mountain and are now presented with a boy who is possessed by demons and none of them could cast out the demon. Jesus immediately identifies the problem. It wasn't a lack of authority, power or purpose because Jesus had imparted that. It was a lack of faith. And Jesus is not nice about telling them this truth either. He scorns the whole gathered people and calls them not only faithless, 
but twisted and displays exasperation at this continued state. I can get the frustration of Jesus here. He's been training his disciples. He sent them out and they did great things in his name and for the glory of God. But then just a few days later, they lacked faith to continue to do what they had just been doing and are completely ineffective. Are they for Jesus or against him? What does their lack of faith tell us about their position before Jesus? And for us personally, do we lack faith in Jesus? What does our lack of faith tell us about our approach to Jesus? Are we for him in our lack of faith? Since the beginning of year, I've been challenged to pray what I thought at the time to be big faith-filled prayers, to set out a prayer plan for our church. That prayer plan is this, 10, 10, 10, 22. That's how I remember it. 10 people to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, 10 new families to join our church, 10 young adults to join our church, and the 22, well, it has a few different meanings. Two by two by two by two of everything else, musicians, singers, your worship team, media, everything, all by the end of 2022. And by faith, I've been praying this, as have our leadership team. And, you know, amaze, God is amazing because he's bringing answers to those prayers already. So why not add that into your, your personal prayer as well? Don't lack faith, but pray faith-filled prayers. 10, 10, 10, 22. 10 people saved, 10 new families, 10 young adults, two of everything else by 2022. Now we could pray this prayer lacking faith. Oh, well, that sounds nice, but it probably won't happen. Oh, but I guess we'll pray it anyway. Or we could pray prayers like this with great faith, believing it to be the will of God and that he will accomplish it. I know which one I'm going to be praying, full of faith. Our prayers may be an insight into our level of faith. If you have a lack of faith, are you for Jesus or against Jesus? Another check is from verse 46, and that's pride. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the disciples are with Jesus and he's just told them again that he was going to die. And they begin bickering amongst them about which one of them was the greatest. The 12 were thinking about rank in the kingdom. They wanted which of them would have the highest position and the most prestige. They demonstrate pride. Jesus used little children on different occasions as object lessons to teach different lessons. 
and once he used a, a, a child to teach that no act of kindness for one of his suffering disciples whom the child represented will pass without God's reward. That's Matthew 10, 40. On the present occasion, Jesus used a child to illustrate two lessons. By standing the child beside him, Jesus gave the child honour. Mark wrote that Jesus took the child in his arms in chapter 9, verse 36 of Mark. So we see Jesus, he did both things. And the first lesson Jesus used this child to illustrate was that his disciples should be as humble as little children. As we read from the account of this occasion, Matthew 18, verse 4 to 6, Luke didn't mention that lesson, but the second lesson was that acceptable service involves caring about people, even insignificant people such as children. We may at times feel that children are insignificant, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually saying they are significant. This is the lesson that, that Luke included in his account of this teaching. Neglected people in society are included in God's kingdom. And in Jewish Greco-Roman culture, a child was the least significant person. So a perfect example for the disciples to contrast between their pride as they sought position and prestige and a child who Jesus gives honour. The principle that Jesus is teaching is that the disciples who, that, that the disciple who is willing to sacrifice personal advancement to serve insignificant people, as the world views people, is truly great in God's estimation. So what does their prideful heart demonstrate? Are they for or against Jesus? How we too can be caught in the trap of pride the trap of position and prestige. It can be so easy for us to look down our noses at others, but Jesus tells us that humbling ourselves, ministering to and welcoming those others that people neglect, it's when we welcome them, that's what reflects his kingdom. How are you with pride, position and, and prestige? Does your heart yearn for these things more than it yearns to follow Jesus? Well, so far we've seen a, a lack of faith reveals the nature of our hearts if we're for or against Jesus. Pride also reveals the nature of our hearts if we are for or against Jesus. And from verse 51, we see what happens when people flatly reject Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people do not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. 
In the overall narrative of Luke, Jesus is beginning his final journey to Jerusalem, a journey of about three days, which passes through Samaritan provinces. And there was a great animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So the Jews thought the Samaritans to be inferior to them as they believed that they were descendants of Israelites who intermarried with non-Jews that the Assyrian kings imported into the land. And the Samaritans despised the Jews because of the way they were treated and the fact that they didn't recognize Jerusalem as the seat of worship. You see, the Samaritans descended from the poor Israelites who remained in the land when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel. Eventually, the Samaritans rejected the Jewish scriptures except the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so these two groups were mutually hostile towards each other. The Samaritans did not reject Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah, but simply because he was a Jew. And don't you love James and John's response here? Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? Just like Elijah did with the non-believers. Please, can we, can we do that? Can we call down fire from heaven to, to these people who, who reject you? Of course, Jesus rebuked them for this. You see, just because people don't accept the gospel doesn't mean we write them off as if they were dead. They still have time to repent and believe. And we still have a mission to reach them with the hope of the gospel. The point of this story is Jesus' toleration of rejection without retaliation. His attitude contrasts with the disciples' attitude, which did not grow out of righteous indignation because the Samaritans were rejecting the Messiah, but out of racial prejudice. James and John were quick to condemn these people because of their underlying prejudices. They were quick to condemn them because of an entrenched prejudice. Yet Jesus calls for tolerance without retaliation. What might be some of the entrenched prejudices that you are harboring towards other people? Are there any racial, socioeconomic or religious prejudices that you have? Well, Jesus' response to rejection is tolerance without retaliation. Maybe we could learn from from this response of Jesus when we are faced with similar prejudices that exist within each one of us. If we are for Jesus, not against him, our desire will be to respond as he does when we are rejected. Tolerance without retaliation. So we've seen so far a lack of faith reveals the nature of our hearts if we're for Jesus or against him. Pride also reveals the nature of our hearts if we're for or against Jesus. And being flatly rejected also reveals the nature of our hearts if we are for or against Jesus. Will we respond with tolerance without retaliation? And the final example that Luke brings to us as we ask the question, are you for or against Jesus? The last self-check is not willing to pay the cost. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' words clarify the cost of discipleship. In the first example, Jesus did not rebuke the man, but clarified for him what following him would involve so he could count the cost intelligently. He would need to be willing to accept homelessness, physical discomfort, other hardship and rejection, just as they had already experienced. In the second example, the man is called to follow Jesus with identical words to how Jesus called the twelve. However, the man wanted Jesus to approve him postponing his obedience. His father was probably older and may have been in his last years of life. You know, as, as burials occurred the exact same day someone died in that culture, this man probably wanted to wait a few years and then follow Jesus at a time that suited him. The dead from whom Jesus said should bury the dead were the spiritually dead who did not believe in Jesus. He's saying that the mission of believers is more important than discharging customary family obligations when they conflict with following Jesus. And with the third example, Jesus is teaching us that discipleship involved hard work and sacrifice, similar to ploughing. A farmer who does not concentrate on his ploughing is not a fit farmer. Likewise, a disciple who allows life to distract him from his duties as a disciple is unfit for the kingdom. The disciple of Jesus must continue to follow him faithfully. These hard sayings of Jesus clarify the demands of discipleship, the costs we must each be willing to pay. Jesus' followers must be willing to share his homelessness, to place participation in God's program above the claims that family and duty impose and to persevere in our calling. But when you are for Jesus, amazing things happen. You know, remember back to that boy that was possessed by the demon? We read earlier, verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. When we are prepared to pay the cost and are for Jesus, amazing things happen, just like this boy. There is healing, physical, mental, emotional, all is possible in Jesus. Just as this boy was healed by the very presence of Jesus and his words, so too can we be healed from what is broken and damaged in each of us. There's also restoration. Jesus restored this only child back to his father. He gave this whole family a future again. We too can be restored to right standing not only before our family, friends and community, but by the free gift of grace of Jesus Christ. We can be restored in the sight of the Father as well. And in the healing of what is broken, in the restoration of what was lost, God's majesty is revealed. 
God is glorified when we who are for Jesus are prepared to pay the cost, respond in faith, humble ourselves before him and respond with tolerance in the face of rejection. And so our challenge is to reveal God's majesty. Our challenge is to be people of great faith who are for Jesus. Our challenge is to swallow our pride and humble ourselves before him. Our challenge is to be tolerant of rejection. Our challenge is to be willing to pay the cost of following Jesus so we can bring healing, restoration and reveal God's majesty. So I have a question for you. Are you for Jesus? Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to be tolerant in the face of rejection? Are you willing to swallow your pride and humble yourself before him? Are you willing to be a person of great faith? Well, I hope the answer is yes. Let's be that together as a community as we seek to bring glory to God and the hope of the gospel to the Northeast. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, may we continue to be for you. May we be willing to be people of great faith, to be humble, to be tolerant, and to be willing to pay the cost of following you so that we can bring healing, restoration, and your majesty. Lord, may people see the revelation of your majesty in us as we are these people of great faith, as we are for you. Let's be known for what we are for, not for what we are against, as we seek to bring hope. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for joining with us today. Uh, we should be back in church next Sunday. Of course, we are at the Behooven uh, uh, dictations of our leader, uh, our premier. Uh, so I'm hoping we'll be back again next week. Uh, but uh, if we're open and we're allowed to be open, we will be. So come along. Uh, and uh, everything else, if it can go ahead and are open, we will continue as planned as much as possible. Uh, hopefully this is just a short, very short blip and then we're back to normal. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I will keep everyone updated on emails and on our Facebook page. So if you'd like any information, either uh, you can email me, call me, check on our Facebook page um, or check the, the church emails. I'll send a few out as soon as we know more. Um, so uh, blessings to everyone this week and uh, may you at home this morning um, be blessed and uh, I look forward to uh, being face-to-face -face again. Bye for now.